Um, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Okay. So we'll start with my <clears throat> verbal cue of a delicious dish. Yeah, because I'm flubbing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. I want to redo this one, isn't it? Thank you. I've wanted to be Thank on a Scraps podcast for quite some time yeah. now. So this oh, God. my dream come true. Ooh, better. <laughs> I hope you. no one gets canceled as a result of this. <laughs> <laughs> I would be violating my promise. You, you, you're both. You're both very insightful, and and your comments, both of you, and I have learned so much from your questions. Thank you, Jojo. Thank you, Arun. That was good. Okay, so. And now on to the podcast. Cool. All right. This is a Scrap Studio production, and you are listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. Brought to you with our sponsors, Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical. In today's episode of Scraps, we are going to deal with a very interesting topic that we honestly feel we don't talk about enough. So far in the season of Scraps. We've spoken on ways to augment neural activity or function, be it with magnetic stimulation in our episode with Nolan Williams and Magnus Medical's CEO, which, by the way, has just received FDA nod for treatment-resistant depression treatment, or using ultrasound or electrical stimulation. But if you can turn something up, you should be able to turn it down, right? Turning things down is not just for your TV remotes. It does work for nerves too. Unclear? Well, let's rectify that. If you know a bit of science and probably have someone in your family that takes multiple medications for diseases like cardiac or respiratory diseases, or if you just Google the name of the drugs that they take, you will see that it is a stimulator or an agonist or a blocker or an antagonist of a specific protein or a pathway. An agonist turns on a molecular cascade that leads to a particular cellular event and therefore a function. An antagonist does the opposite. We did an episode on beta blockers with Bob Ruffalo in season one of Scraps. In that episode, we discussed that carvedilol, which was the first blocker of beta adrenergic receptor, is used for the treatment of heart failure, and it saved lives of millions of heart failure patients. But if you think about neuromodulation and bioelectronic medicines, do we really have the ability to turn down the volume of the nervous system? Let me give you a few examples of where this might be important. Spinal cord stimulation relies on a form of block of small fibers that carry pain sensations to the brain. And the way the current spinal cord stimulation devices work is by stimulating the large nerve fibers as an adaptation of the gate theory of pain. There are many other therapies where ablation techniques have been tried experimentally to treat cardiac conditions, like, for example, renal nerve denervation or carotid body denervation. I personally worked on at least five different big disease conditions with a huge unmet need and a big population. Where neural signaling drives disease pathology, and therefore must be reduced or dialed down. All of this information is now in public domain, and the diseases that I'm referring to are ones like polycystic ovarian syndrome, type two diabetes targeting the carotid body, or type two diabetes targeting the sympathetic innervation to the gut. 
Some additional ones include cardiac arrhythmias and prostate cancer. All of these diseases have neural signaling or increased neural signaling that drives disease pathology. In fact, at my previous job, we even had access to the experimental technology that was developed and something that we will discuss in this episode. But due to various reasons that I won't have time to go into, these licenses were then given back to the university and a startup and the original inventor on these patents picked it up and is developing a very interesting therapy using nerve block. The best way to think of this technology is very similar to applying noise cancellation to the nerve so that the end organ perceives very little signal that comes through, thereby dynamically allowing treatment of some disease conditions where neural signals drive pathology. Mind you, we're not talking about direct brain region modulation here, but of direct modulation of the autonomic nervous system. To this end, we've invited Michael Ackerman. Michael is a prolific inventor and an entrepreneur who until recently was the CEO of the company that we are going to talk about, Presidio Medical. Before that, he was the CEO of Oculive, which was ultimately sold to its acquirer, Allegan. We could take multiple tactics to explore this area and the subject, but since Michael is an inventor on some of the foundational patents in this area, we decided that it was best to explore the evolution of science from Michael's life story thus far. So this way, we accomplished two things. First is that Michael was at the right place at the right time. And in science and innovation, you got to be impatient to be patient. So you can drop and pick up innovative ideas at will and at times of one's choosing. Very few people have had that liberty and Michael certainly had that luxury. Oh, and Michael is an alum of Case Western Reserve University, that infamous university that has led to the birthing of almost the entire industry of today by training multiple current generation scientists and engineers in the field today. So we picked the conversation up right there. Keeping in line with the theme of the season on bioelectronic medicine. So I think there are aspects that we have covered um, across what we have defined as kind of various verticals within the area of bioelectronic medicines. And most of it kind of deals with stimulation or modulation through stimulation. So what we thought we could do with you is take a bit of your a journey through the timeline uh, via the lens of Michael Ackerman's professional journey to talk about nerve blocking. Because we could have gone to Niloy and Kevin, who I know very well, uh, and probably Jojo knows them really well as well. Um, but I think there is always some value in kind of talking this through from a perspective of somebody who has gone from being a PhD student, but extremely productive, not just in terms of kind of publishing, but also in terms of someone who has looked at it from uh, an IP perspective. And I know there are a lot of people at Case, uh, with you being one of the early kind of uh, trailblazers there, along with, with, uh, with another kind of person um, in the space who, who kind of moved to Nevro and then over to ATI and others. Uh, so you guys were kind of that batch of people who kind of started that whole journey there of kind of flooding the industry with case grads, right? Uh, and Jojo kind of jokes about 
you can't you can't fling a dead cat without hitting a case grad. No, you can't swing a dead cat. Not fling. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get our animal abuse okay, analogies right. <laughs> okay. All right. You can't swing a dead cat <laughs> as if that's not enough abuse. But anyway. <laughs> Chapter 1: History of nerve blocking. So, I guess it, let's just jump in and what is it that that got you to to look at things differently and start looking at nerve blocking instead of nerve stimulation? Yeah, I mean really it, it started when I was a, a PhD student a PhD student at Case Western and uh, I had done my masters with Hunter Peckham and um had worked on developing a, a telemetry link for uh this network neural prosthesis system that Hunter and his team were were working on um, and and I uh, are still working on and I had a lot of fun with that I learned a lot um became a much better engineer uh but was also uh realizing that I I wanted to learn um how to be a, a scientist and uh, and do you know uh, hypothesis driven experiments as well and um started talking to Kevin Kilgore who was one of my mentors at the time um and uh he invited me to to join his lab that was working on nerve block technologies and uh, primarily high frequency nerve block at the time um and then I went and it was it was fun so we posed this question of agonist versus antagonist that I alluded to in the introduction to Michael and asked him to give his idea of how the field of neural blocking evolved and michael is just going to do just that for us yeah so really i think it goes as far back as uh, hodgkin and huxley and and their pivotal work that was was done back in the 50s and uh, won the nobel prize I, i think in the early 60s or maybe it was maybe it was in the 50s and what did they do uh, really i mean they're their work in for understanding the mechanisms of neural activation and inhibition uh what you know of course they they did uh did that was so remarkable is is uh helping the world understand why the action potential works the way that it does and the the channels that are involved in that sodium channels potassium channels in fact when michael was studying the phenomenon at the level of the nerve at case western People like myself in parallel were studying it directly in cells in my in my case cardiac cells just down the road from Cleveland These sodium and potassium channels in nerve fibers that Michael alluded to and the ones in the heart are isoforms meaning they function in a very similar manner but yet are so different in subtle ways that make them unique to a nerve cell or a heart cell And one of the things that they discovered and I'm referring to Hodgkin and Huxley and characterized at the time was that sodium channels can actually be inactivated when the membrane voltage of the neuron is elevated. So what Michael is trying to say is that these proteins in the cell membrane of a neuron or a cardiac cell and specifically in the case of Hodgkin and Huxley from Cambridge they studied a giant squid axon in the beach waters of Southampton they would make their trip down from Cambridge to the south coast of England stay there catch squid isolate the giant squid axon as it was 
Essentially, they're spinal cord, but made of one long cell, just one. So it made life easy for Hodgkin and Huxley to study the properties of nerve conduction. What they figured out by applying biophysical principles was that nerve action potential had an upstroke and a downstroke. The upstroke and downstroke were very similar, except for the fact that the downstroke had an overshoot below the baseline, and this was seen repeatedly. In fact, for all of you nerds and quiz aficionados, the path solution that they used was not anything fancy but just salt water from the sea. And before they started substituting the salts in the way we do it in the lab today. So from all these experiments, they figured out that the ions responsible for the upstroke of the action potential was sodium. Or if you remember basic biochemistry or cell biology, there is very less sodium inside the cell than outside. And this rush of sodium triggers a quick release in positive charges inside the cell. And once this influx of sodium happens, potassium starts moving in to return this polarization back to baseline. And from the mathematical deductions, they determine that the depolarization of the cell membrane, the sodium channels, allowing sodium ions to rush in and then ultimately spreading a lot of positive charges into the cell will act to inactivate the same protein that opened the channel. And if you're wondering what made them determine this, it is the use of Nernst equation. And with further experiments, they hypothesized that the sodium channels and for that matter, most ion channels have essentially three states. A state which is open, that allows for ions to move freely to pass through their pore. An inactivated state, one which serves as a temporary barrier, much like a steward who regulates the queue. These inactivated ion channels can then reactivate again once a certain amount of time has passed, much like how a steward can usher in the crowd. Hodgkin and Huxley theorized that these states and referred to them as gates, an M gate for opening or depolarization and a H gate for inactivation. Finally, there is a closed state where everything ceases. This happens at equilibrium potential as determined by Nernst equation for each ion. And coming back to this episode, all of this was a function of how much voltage was applied to the giant squid axon. Hodgkin and Huxley knew exactly how much current they injected and could measure the ion flow as a voltage, in this case an action potential. And they also determined at what repetitive currents that they applied to the nerve, that the action potential started reducing in amplitude, or what they referred to as inactivation, and when the inactivation process kicked in. Or if they up continued applying the currents, when the nerve action potential would completely stop, which they attributed to closure of the ion channels. What was remarkable to Hodgkin and Huxley was that these M and H gates that they proposed in the late 1940s and early 1950s was shown to be true when further sophisticated techniques came along, like the patch clamping technique and X-ray crystallography. The inactivation gate was found in actuality to be a ball connected to a chain that can swing to plug the lumen of the ion channel protein 
or swing away to open the iron channel. When the inactivation process is complete and the iron channel has had some time to recover, these functional studies with patch clamping and crystallography led to the elucidation of the structure of these ion channels that contributes to nerve action potential. And this became evident through the works of some Nobel Prize winning scientists like Roderick McKinnon and Neheran Sackman. Now, on to Michael, who will explain the rest. Um, and uh, one of the things that they uh, discovered and characterized at that time was that sodium channels can be inactivated. Uh, when the membrane voltage of a neuron um, is elevated. And really, I, I think what's kind of fun thinking about it through that lens is you, you, you look at sort of the two sides, and I think the, the wording for their Nobel Prize literally is something along the lines of mechanisms for ac activation and, in, and inhibition. You know, it's the, the activation half of that that's really uh, you know, impacted the lives of so you know, so many millions of people, you know, both through um, cardiac stimulation, you know, neurostimulation, um, you know, spinal cord, deep brain, all, all the things. Um, but really that uh, inhibition side uh, is, is really um, just now uh, starting to, uh, to, to bear fruit. I think there's some good reasons for that. And uh, so sort of keeping with the history here, I mean, really, they had uh, were looking at were, what were effectively direct current signals to inhibit um, inhibit neurons. And uh, there was some work that was pursued in the in the 60s, some you know, early work um, you know, for those that were uh, uh, among the, the same um, electrophysiology crew that was was breaking so much ground at that time. And started exploring direct current as a, a means to to block um, or in, block neurons or inhibit uh, populations of neurons. And you know what they found at the time was that uh, you know unfortunately delivering direct current uh, resulted in some chemical reactions at the side of the electrode that that meant that you couldn't deliver it for very long safely. And um, so that work was pretty quickly abandoned. Um, and in those same early days, there was some work that was uh, being done on, on very high frequency stimulation and, and just uh, exploring how, you know, and when I say high frequency, it's kilohertz type stimulation uh, and, you know, ones of kilohertz, tens of kilohertz, et cetera. And, yeah, I, I think some of the early, um, you know, some early hints back in those uh, 60s, 70s that, that uh, kind of signal could, um, you know, could create an in in inhibition of neurons um, after after an excitatory period, which is is kind of interesting. Um, and then the work uh, really kind of uh, fizzled out for a while, and and really was picked up again uh, by uh, Kevin Kilgore and Eloy Badra um, at Case Western, and this is, you know. Back in the sort of 2000-ish time frame, maybe even you know late 90s, um, and uh, started exploring this 
uh, this high frequencies again. And, and you know, their effort really uh, spurred a new, uh, a new interest, uh, not only within their lab, but, but others as well to, to start exploring nerve block te- technologies again. And, uh, starting with high frequency and, uh, and, and ultimately going back to, to uh, direct current as well. Okay, so with that knowledge that Michael just explained, let's look at how this knowledge of stimulation was applied to block nerves. For example, we know that the nerves fire as a volley of impulses. This is usually in the range of tens of hertz in frequency, but very rarely in hundreds of hertz. And we also know that nerves, when stimulated with current or these intrinsic action potentials, it leads to a release of neurotransmitters at the synapses of the nerve terminals. And this leads to a biochemical cascade and a function, say for example, contraction of a muscle. But what if one stimulated the nerve at a frequency range that was much higher? To understand this, we must understand a phenomenon called overdrive pacing. This is a concept that is borrowed from the cardiac world, but also can be applied to nerves. When one stimulates the nerve, say above its native frequency, you exhaust the neurotransmitters that are being released. This neurotransmitter needs to be recycled or transported back into the cell for the next volley of impulses traveling down the nerve. And the only way to have an efficient nerve transmission is if the impulse, the incoming nerve impulse, is less than what the retransportation of the neurotransmitters back from the synapse is actually going to be. But what if you stimulate it faster than what the pumps could recycle those neurotransmitters? What happens then is a phenomenon that is very similar to fatigue. So essentially, you're driving this tissue, a nerve or a heart muscle, at rates faster than what it normally does. And this causes initial release of neurotransmitters, followed by a period where the nerve cannot perform its function despite being activated with an extrinsic current or a voltage. And if you went faster than this, you introduce a state that is very similar to inactivation and closure of the ion channels. Let us ask Michael to explain this further. Chapter 2 types of block. So this is a, I'm not a scientist or an engineer, just a, a sci curious kind of gal. Um, so I know there's a lot of debate about what exactly is high frequency stimulation and where it starts and stops. What are the parameters? Is there a similar um, discussion on high frequency blocking? Yes. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I think what's, what's interesting about that is that the, and you know the physiology really kind of drives you know what uh, you know at what frequencies can be blocked with high frequency and what can't. Um, so uh, actually, a, a project that uh, I worked on as a, a PhD student with uh, with uh, Kevin and Neloy, my uh, PhD advisors, and and also um, uh, a colleague of mine. Uh, from the um, the mathematics department, we actually tried to figure out uh, you know why uh, at, after a certain frequency range things start to block as opposed to to just excite and um, 
so it it turns out that it, it's it's actually the you know the dynamics of the sodium channel um, and that inactivation gate it's uh, so it has its own kinetics so the, the sodium channel's got these you know two different types of gates right so it, it has these activation gates that that open uh, at higher voltages and these inactivation gates that close at higher voltages um, and the sort of the classic model where you have this little like the inactivation gate looks like a little um, cork on a string and when the cork is inside of the channel then the uh, the current can't flow and when it's when it's outside of the channel the current can flow um, and it turns out that the the cork on the string uh, has its own um, you know sort of mechanical property if you will it, it's uh, it, and you know, above a certain frequencies, it can't wiggle anymore. And so um, once you get above a few kilohertz or so, that's kind of where the bend, you know, the cutoff frequency for that little cork on the string is. Um, then it, it starts to look at uh, basically the lower frequencies. So if you're, um, if you're, pumping in a, a bunch of high frequency and you're starting to get a slow depolarization of the membrane and it's at a high enough frequency, the cork on the string only looks at the slow depolarization and not the wiggle at the high frequency. So um, really that's, that's why, you know, high frequency blocking really does start around kind of high ones of, of kilohertz or around 10 kilohertz. From there, I think you you very beautifully kind of describe the difference between high frequency stimulation and nerve block um, of using gradations of increasing frequency to produce both stimulation and block. And also there is a bit of finer uh, refinement or a fine tuning of those parameters, isn't it? Because even when we talk about just nerve block, there are different versions of nerve block uh, as well. Um, so can you just walk us through what those different types of nerve block really is? Uh, because when you talk to the experts like yourself, like Loy and Kevin, with whom I've spoken extensively, they always describe this classic things of what happens when you stimulate a nerve, uh, like a sciatic nerve or a spinal cord at hundreds of frequencies versus a thousand hertz, which is one kilohertz to before you hit one kilohertz to maybe what would be described or what you have traditionally played on in terms of what you would describe as complete nerve block. So there is a gradation of nerve block. Can you just describe those three types for us? Michael? Yeah. And, and so when you're talking about the, you're really talking about different frequency ranges and, and sort of what happens at those different frequencies. Yeah. I mean, I, I um, and I don't know if this is where you're going or not, but maybe this is where I'll go with it. I mean, so, um, there, there is a, sort of a um, one way to to block a nerve, and maybe this would be a, the old school way to block a nerve is is just to to wear it out. So you can stimulate it, you um, call it hundreds of hertz, and just pound on it long enough until you you sort of deplete all the the neurotransmitters uh, at the uh, synaptic uh, junction. And even though you're continuing to, to stimulate the nerve, it doesn't uh, actually create any action on the, the end organ uh, because the, the neurotransmitters are depleted. Um, 
And so that uh, that is a technique that was you know, that was used uh, you know throughout the literature, sort of I'd say pre you know, pre two thousand. Um, there uh, there is uh, this um, higher frequency range, which um, which I I meant, um, alluded to before, which if you can sort of get above the um, the the range where that little ball and chain uh, H gate inactivation gate can can act, then you can actually create a nerve block, and that's sort of in the you know ten you know ten ish kilohertz range. Um, you know, a challenge with that is in order to get into that blocked uh, or in, in inhibited state, you actually have to go through a period of activity, um, and so that's uh, pretty in, inherent inherent to the mechanism there. So it's you could eventually get block, but it actually creates some hyperactivity before it gets to to block, which is, um, you know, ultimately where I think uh, direct current block can actually create, you know, create some real, you know, some real advantages. Um, and and then direct current block uh, is something that uh, basically you're you're you can slowly cause that in inactivation gate to to sort of plug up the the sodium ion channels and create uh, you know prevent sodium from from floating flowing in and, and creating an, an inhibition that way so what Michael discovered through his PhD work was that nerves respond to a range of currents in a way that is graded a small increase in frequency leads to activation and then upon increasing it further, leads to fatigue or neurotransmitter depletion. The classic example of this is driving certain brain regions to reduce tremors or stimulating the spinal cord at hundreds of frequency, at hundreds of hertz to reduce pain. The next way is to increase it to a frequency above 1000 hertz or 1 kilohertz. And this causes initial activation and then in activation, the ball and chain kicks in. And if the frequency response is similar until about 10 kilohertz, and this frequency response is still similar until about 10 kilohertz, around 10 kilohertz or above, there is still an inactivation that is seen as the nerve starts responding to this high frequency, but the ion channels go directly into a closed state, skipping the inactivation state completely. And this causes conduction block. This phenomenon is called as KHFAC or kilohertz frequency alternating current block. An alternating current waveform that is applied at kilohertz ranges to produce conduction block. Now, remember, the nerve in most cases resembles a cylindrical cable. In fact, this is what led to the coining the cable theory to explain nerve conduction. So if one has to apply the signal to block the nerve signals, the current flow that is applied to the nerve fiber must be uniform to all parts of the nerve. And therein lies the technical challenge in contrast to just nerve stimulation. And in addition to this, Michael during his PhD also worked on another blocking modality called direct current block that he alluded to. 
So instead of using alternating current that has a sinusoidal pattern, direct current uses current of just one polarity. But that's not entirely just a solution. Let's hear from Michael again about this. Chapter 3. Direct current block and its ability to turn off nerve so conduction. In terms of, of applying this and, and moving outside of the theory in the lab and, and experimental science, um, are, there, are there significantly different requirements in terms of equipment, form factor, space, application for blocking versus stimulation? It's a great question. It's certainly for uh, certainly for direct current or direct current like blocking, and and that's really the um, the the genesis of Presidio Medical is using those uh, those technologies for uh, for therapeutic applications. And uh, I mentioned earlier there that you know the direct current was abandoned back in the 60s because uh, it was it, uh, it couldn't be used safely it was you know you start creating these reactions at the the side of the electrode and so really the the novelty for presidio is uh, a series of technologies both on um, the electrode material side uh, but also on the way that uh, those materials are monitored and managed um, actively uh, to allow that to be um, you know, to prevent those reactions from happening and and to be able to to use this direct current tool effectively. So, um, so for high frequency, uh, it, you know the the equipment looks pretty similar to you know to a standard stimulator. So, uh, you know, for example, Nevro technology delivering ten kilohertz uh, that. IPG, you know, implantable pulse generator, and stimulation. The equipment looks very similar to to what it might look like for, uh, you know, for a, a Boston Scientific device. Um, you know, w with the exception of, uh, you know, the IP constraints allow some of them. You know, allows never to operate in these high frequencies where where Boston can't, for example, but. Um, certainly, from an equipment perspective, it looks very similar. Um, with when uh, using these very, very low frequencies or, or very, very um, you know, long pulses, DC-like pulses, then it does become a different ballgame. But before we get all excited, the direct current that Michael is talking about has its limitations. Since the current is of a single polarity, positive or negative, and the electrical pulse that is provided through DC block is of a longer duration of a few milliseconds, it causes some other issues. Let's discuss this further with Michael as to what they are. Yeah, so th thanks for that, Michael. I think what you're then saying is that I think for application of traditional alternating current waveform, you can it's basically stimulation at a really high frequency. So the existing kind of stimulators uh, that, that are implantable are sufficient enough as long as you can, you can make the electrode contact sufficient enough to produce block, etc. Whereas 
DC is different or direct current is different from alternating current, especially kilohertz frequency alternating current, because as you described there, there's an element of activation prior to to kind of um, inactivation that you have to go through when you increase the frequency. And that's what the DC or direct current block enables, but it also enables you to do it at a very low frequency, right? So, which basically, and one of the reasons why, if I'm, if I'm right, it was probably abandoned or was probably kind of not, um, not taken up very widely at the time. This is, I'm talking about kind of when it was first described back in the 60s and as well as kind of in the early days when you were doing your PhD, et cetera, was because of the whole material kind of differences that, that happens or material changes that, or changes that happens to the material at the tissue electrode interface when you apply uh, DC. So all of your papers from your PhD and as well as your patents, et cetera, talks about charge balancing the DC current. So talk us through what happens to the electro tissue interface there and then talk about what does charge balancing do? And then hopefully that brings us back to the technology that you're currently working on or you're, although you're not part of the company in, in a management capacity, but I think it's still a company that you're involved in. So uh, we'll, we'll bring to that, but let's talk about that tissue electrode interface and the limitations of applying DC current. Sure, yeah, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. I, I mean, it was abandoned largely because uh, of you know, the chemical reactions that were happening at the surface of the electrode. And, and I'm happy to, to um, walk through, uh, you know, what those look like. Um, fortunately, a lot has a lot has changed in material science in the you know the intervening sixty years, and so um, and and also a lot has changed in terms of the the capability uh, electronic capability for uh, for monitoring some of these things as well. So um, and and Presidio's technology leverages both of those technological advancements to. Um, to allow uh, these waveforms to be delivered safely and effectively. Um, sort of coming back uh, and to, to get to the root of it is uh, when charge is, is delivered through an electrode, that um, you have electrons on the, the metal part. And so that's, that's how uh, electronics talk to each other on the, you know, the microphones that we're, we're using right now. Uh, they're all all electrons, um, and the body's charge carrier uh, carriers are ions, and so these are um, you know, charged uh, charged particles. You have sodium ions, chloride ions, so um, ions with the uh, you know atoms with the charge on them, and at the 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 at the electrode interface, that's where current. Uh, transfers from electrons to ions. And so there are a couple of mechanisms for getting electrons to, to change into ions. Um, you know, one is uh, capacitive, meaning um, when electrons build up on one side of this electrode plate, the ions in the body feel it. And so if there's a positive charge, then all of the negative ions, you know, rush towards it, and the positive ones run away. Uh, the opposite is true if there's a negative charge on the electrode. 
Um, and that's, that's how uh, traditional stimulation um, predominantly works, actually. So uh, it's, it's capacitive charge transfer at the electrode um, because there's a very, very small amount of charge. Um, for uh, larger amounts of charge, then, um, then you, you have to tap into some other, uh, some other mechanisms. So basically at the, um, the, the side of the electrode, you can actually, uh, you know, exchange, um, electrons from the plate to some material on the other side. And so there are, um, uh, plenty of, of, of reactions there that are, are, you know, fairly, uh, you know, inert and are, are completely safe. So one with a, a traditional technology, platinum, for example, um, you can, uh, uh, with the addition of an electron and uh, a hydrogen ion, you can turn platinum into platinum hydride. So it's this little, you know, crystalline structure that can build up on the outside of platinum. Um, and when you run current the other way, then uh, the hydrogen ions, uh, you know, are given back into the, the body and it turns back into the elemental platinum. Um, what happens if you were to take that same platinum electrode and uh, you've, you've packed a bunch of charge on capacitively and now the entire outside of the platinum is all platinum hydride and, uh, and you're still pushing electrons on it? Um, to force current through, then those electrons have to to find yet another reaction, um, a, another another place to land, and they land on on water. And so, what happens is those electrons go to the water. Uh, it breaks the water uh, apart, and uh, it creates a very um, high pH or or very basic environment um, around the side of the electrode. And the opposite is true if you're if you're running it in the in the other direction. Um, so uh, sort of much like um, you know putting lemon juice on 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 fish uh, to create ceviche, um, that's the the very type of thing that would happen. You know if you're using traditional materials and uh, it, uh, to deliver direct current uh, to to the body tissue. Um, so. When, uh, when, uh, to, to take a step back and, and going back to, uh, the, the work that I was doing as a, a student, um, with Kevin and Nalloy, we, um, uh, we had actually had started looking at DC precisely because of the, the, um, the problems that high frequency poses. And the, the issues, as Arun, as you were saying, is you, you, you inherently create activity when you want to block. Um, and another issue that's associated with that is uh, it actually, uh, high, high frequencies are, are not very good at creating like a graded block. It's kind of like it's, it's all on or it's all off. So there's no, you know, there's no volume knob. Um, it's, you know, it, you need to get, you know, turn it up to 11 to get the block. And if you're, if you're at a five or six, you're just creating activities. So, um, so, uh, direct current actually, uh, does not create any activity, um, and also allows this kind of volume knob type of, 
of uh, feature, if you will. So you can uh, turn it up or turn it down. And uh, so we, we uh, Kevin and Deloy started looking at direct current. Um, and one of the things that, that I was curious about towards the, the end of my time at Case Western is, you know, is there a way to do that safely? Um, and uh, you discovered an early way to do that. Um, and, uh, and, and Presidio has since found better ways to, to, uh, you know, to, to do that. Um, but, um, inherently what it, what it comes down to is, uh, leveraging materials that, um, uh, that don't, uh, that, uh, don't induce those reactions that create the, the, you know, the, the change in pH or the, the ceviche kind of, uh, behavior. Um, and then also, uh, what, what we learned is that monitoring it, um, closely, you can look at the voltages that are on the electrode and, and actually know pretty precisely what's happening electrochemically, um, at the side of the electrode. And so that's, uh, that's what allows the, um, basically a new set of safety systems around, uh, around using this type of, of block to make it, um, uh, to make it possible outside of the lab environment and something that's really uh, appropriate for for widespread medical use. So I have a follow up question to the uh, DC block there, uh, Michael. So one of the ways or one of the issues with using DC, which are described at, with the reactions at the tissue electrode interface, uh, is the fact that you could you could kind of produce the the deep depolarizing or the inhibitory signal, and then you need to kind of get it back to the state where you have to push the hydrogen ions back, right? So that process of what how you do electrically is ch with charge balancing. And that's one of the, that takes longer than what your initial pulse to block would actually be. Um, and therefore, if you needed a much more faster response to block the nerve, you would need to kind of recycle uh, or with a single electrode with, to, to produce a DC block you wouldn't be able to do. Was that why you actually started creating, um, even back in the day during a PhD about exploring this carousel DC where it almost like you just hop on and hop off, just like how you would go on a merry-go-round between from one one seat on the carousel to the other so that you can continue. And by the time you come back to the first one, you would actually ensure that the block is, the first one is ready to block again. Uh, so explain that that part to us a bit more. Because that's not that's very different to what the technology um, that you use at Presidio is, right? So I just want to kind of draw a line between the comparison. It's not it's taken from there, but or it's inspired from there, but it's not entirely the same as what the technology that Presidio is developing in terms of waveforms and electrodes and other things. Yeah, so. that, that's um, that's right. So we 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 leverage something slightly slightly different than this this carousel idea. Um, and I, I think the carousel idea uh, is, you know, uh, interesting and and um, and clever one, uh, particularly if you're if you're dealing with materials that don't have a lot of charge capacity. Um, we, uh, you know, fortunately that don't have to, to leverage that. One of the challenges with carousel is that 
uh, or as you suggested, there's you have, you have multiple electrodes sitting next to each other, and you kind of hop one to the next to the next to the next. And uh, inherently, that that really limits you to to like a peripheral nerve where you have you're able to put one next to the other, next to the other, next to the other. And if you want to to modulate something like the spinal cord, which is where uh, where Presidio is focused initially, um, or ultimately the the brain, um, then you're, you really want to be able to modulate tissue that's immediately adjacent to a single electrode. Chapter four: Presidio Medical and its novelty. Um, and to be able to steer current uh, to create field shapes where you can can get pretty precise about where you're inhibiting tissue. And so, uh, so Presidio's technology uh, can deliver, um, you know, many seconds of a pulse in a, in a single direction or or the other. And one thing that's really nice about uh, about direct current is that you can actually uh, either phase, you know, whether it's it's positive uh, or anodic or negative or cathodic, you can actually create inhibition. Um, so we're actually able to create inhibition on both of those phases. And there's a, a, a brief transition that happens in between the two phases where, uh, you know, where, where that um, uh, tissue is, is less inhibited. One of the things that we uh, have also uh, discovered along the way and uh, and have been able to leverage therapeutically is that there's uh, a secondary phenomenon, so that there's this kind of acute blockade that happens. Um, but we're also able to uh, to leverage a, a phenomenon where where we can actually create a, a more prolonged uh, block and something that um, that uh, after you know several minutes or to you know even an hour you know depending on what amplitude you're using you can you can put tissue in a, in a more suppressed state and within the last year we we uh, published a paper in science translational medicine with uh, with uh, a really amazing collaborator Steve McMahon in uh, King's College London who's who's sadly passed away um, but uh, but characterizing that that phenomenon and and also uh, with some uh, collaboration from Scott Limka uh, professor at uh, at University of Michigan who uh, who did some simulation work to that uh, that matched the experimental work uh, that was was done and uh, and what we showed is that actually uh, you we can out uh, essentially outpace what are called these sodium potassium pumps so in the neuron so there are these little pumps um, that uh, create this gradient that allow electrical conduction in a neuron and uh, they they sit across the membrane and uh, they pump sodium uh, in one direction outside of the cell and they pump potassium inside of the cell and that is what uh, sets up this this resting membrane potential um, that uh, Hotchkin, or Hodgkin and Huxley um, you know, so elegantly uh, characterized back in the 60s. And 
it turns out that if you deliver you know, these um, these very very long DC like pulses, um, you know, uh, seconds long, and and do it for uh, do it for some meaningful period of time, you can actually uh, sort of outrun the pumps, if you will. So you you can you can move sodium and potassium faster than the pumps can replace it, and so that allows uh, creating this this longer term suppression, um, you know, fully rever- reversible. You know, if you turn it off and and wait for it to come back, it it uh, it, uh, it it comes back. Um, but uh, a pretty um, Pretty amazing phenomenon uh, that starts showing up, and I mentioned those transition periods between one phase and the other. You can start seeing activity dropping out during those transition phases, um, and eventually going away completely. Um, and uh, and then even if you turn that signal off, then you can slowly watch that activity come back. And where that's really uh, can be really relevant, um, and it's something that uh, that we've seen clinically at Presidio as well is that uh, there's uh, there, there's sort of an onset uh, time and a, a washout time, if you will, um, for for pain, for example. So if you're inhibiting pain signals and uh, the, the longer you're delivering that waveform, the deeper inhibition yeah. um, is felt. Yeah, and when you turn it off, actually, the you know, the patients actually continue to to feel some you know relief for uh, a period of, of hours or days while that uh, while that uh, uh, the pumps work to re- to restore that uh, that membrane potential. So it's it's another um, tool in the kit there to uh, to to leverage inhibition therapeutically. Chapter five: Michael's entrepreneurial journey. All right, I'm going to I'm going to signal a little bit of a lane change here. Yes, using my turn signal because I'm a sane and rational person. Um <laughs> occasionally sane and rational. So we've talked about Case Western a little bit, your time there, and then we've had mention of Presidio Medical, but there's a a middle chapter there with Oculeve. And I'm hoping maybe you can tell us a little bit about that because I think it it predates some of the newer people in the field. Um, and it's a, it's a great piece of history. So I want to be sure that we capture that story. Sure. Yeah. So after, uh, after my, my PhD work, um, I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I think it's kind of the quintessential, um, you know, getting to the end of the PhD and, and also just being, uh, you know, being in my, my mid to late twenties and having that quarter life crisis of, you know, what uh, what am I going to be when I grow up? I'm still and, having that. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, so so I. <laughs> it turns out it doesn't go away. Actually, um, had spoken with uh, Kevin Kilgore, my you know my again my PhD advisor at the time, and said, "Look, I'm trying to figure this out. Um, you know, I'm kind of wondering whether or not I should do academia or do industry." Um, and I, I'd like to do an internship, and uh, and I had uh, kind of backchanneled to some folks at Boston Scientific's Neuromodulation Group, and uh, and asked if I could um, if they had an internship available, and it sounds like they did, and 
Kevin made me the deal that if I if I finished all of my experiments, um, then I could go do the internship as long as I was writing uh, while I was doing the internship. Um, so I did that, and I, I really just had an amazing the classic PI. PI blackmail, right? No, that's right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Created, created a real crunch of uh, of lab experiments right right before right before leaving. So I, I really had an amazing time. The Boston Scientific Neuromodulation Group is really just a very impressive, terrific group of people um, at that time and still is. A couple of really important things happened during that internship. I, I, one, I learned a lot about uh, what neuromodulation in a, in a commercial setting is. I, I spent um, a good chunk of my time there literally knocking on almost every cubicle and door and just asking almost every person there what they're doing and you know <laughs> can you explain to me um you know how this works how that works and and uh, so it was really educational um two i i really realized at that time that i i, I did not want to stay an academic um it was uh like it was so neat to be working on something that was uh, very directly um helping patients you you know that the, the Technologies that they were building there were, were going to be for the, the next generation device that were, would be helping patients. Um, you know, I, or was it a real hatred towards writing grants there, Michael? You can be truthful with yeah, us. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that, that was, uh, you know, a very real part of it. Um, you know, I, I also uh, I also learned um, that I. I, I probably didn't want to work at a big company. Um, you know, it was it was just a a, a very different culture um, from, from academia. I was I was hoping that a small company you know, could be could could be maybe an in between. Um, and then finally, very importantly, I, I met my now wife uh, while I was out in California. So um, I uh, I fell in love with uh, with uh, with her and decided I needed to get to California somehow. Um, and so <laughs> I tried to put all the pieces together. I, I, I found this, um, uh, this program at, at Stanford called BioDesign. It's a, a fellowship program. Um, and uh, it, it seemed like it would, it would kind of check all the boxes. It was a healthcare entrepreneurship training um, program. Uh, it was very importantly, it was in California um, and it, it would sort of, Park me somewhere in between academia and industry uh, while I while I figured it all out. Um, and during that fellowship time, um, uh, just had a, another really impactful year for my my career in life. Um, I uh, my my team and I uh, focused on uh, an unmet need for the treatment of dry eye disease and. Uh, developed an early idea for using neurostimulation to, to treat that. And so um, uh, after the fellowship here, uh, I, most importantly, I got married and uh, 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 to, to Kirsten and also started, uh, started Oculeave, which was the, the company that was based on that neurostimulation idea for treating dry eye. And, uh, over the course of about three and a half years or so, managed uh, Oculeave as as the the CEO and 
we developed a product called TrueTier for treating uh, treating dry eye disease, um, and it really had a just a great time there. I, I'm I'm definitely a fan, a proponent of biodesign. We've incorporated that with Stanford's help into our neurodesign program at, at Case Western. But shameless plug aside, um, not everyone really makes that transition from lab to leadership quite so easily. And there are some for whom it's not a calling and some for whom it's just not a fit, um, whether they believe it or not. Um, how is that experience and what advice do you have for people who are considering uh a, a path to startups and commercializations as part of their life experience and training? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I, I think a way is to, to, um, you know, to do a program like Stanford Biodesign or the uh, Cleveland Neurodesign, uh, which I was involved with last year and really uh, just an incredible program. Um, you know, just in- incredibly brilliant people, and it's all focused on uh, on neurotech. Um, so I, I think I think I saw applications might be open. So um, so if anyone listening is interested, uh, you should you should definitely get it in soon. Um, that is some serious case and, loyalty coming out there. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh I, I, yeah, I, I love those guys. I mean, I. I <laughs> I'm a, I'm a loyal, loyal, uh, loyal grad. So, uh, um, yeah. So I mean, it, it's uh, you know, it, it, it is um, something that uh, that you know, making that transition from you know from science to, to leadership, and, and that can mean a lot of things. I mean, it can be scientific leadership. I mean, it doesn't have to be general management. Um, and I, I think that. Um, really, it, it's it, there are a lot of paths to getting there. There's no prescribed one. Um, you know, it's not necessarily going through you know, some educational program. And um, you know, I would say for most people, it's actually you know, getting um, getting a great job at a place where you have uh, you know uh, other leaders in the company that that are willing to take an interest and. Um, and help develop you and, and give you increased responsibility. And, you know, I think that's, that's a great way to, um, to do that. And I think uh, in that context, I, I think it's also really helpful to be, um, uh, to be upfront about your ambitions and, and, you know, Hey, I, I, I would like to, to, you know, be, de- to develop into a leader and you know, I'd like to, to, um, gain support and help to do that, and uh, I think you know uh, any um, you know part of any of anyone any manager's job is to develop their their team and to uh, develop the um, you know those that that um, you know that work for them and help them get to where they want to be. And so I think being candid about that uh, it really can only help to to help make sure that people get those opportunities um you know for me it was it was a little bit more of a a a trial by necessity and fire i mean i I, uh you know my my first real job was you know was as ceo of a company of one um you know so i wasn't (laughs) wasn't managing anybody to, to start with and um you know as the the company you know, grew had to to really learn some of those skills along the way, um, and for me, it, it was really important to to find 
good mentors um, that could help uh, help develop me um, and uh, could help me answer um, you know challenging questions along the way that you know, somewhere as simple as you know, am I supposed to you know provide food at the office you know or, or is <laughs> um, and as you know as complex as board management and, and how to you know how to structure. Um, operations for for a company, et cetera. So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, if there's if there's one piece of advice, it, it's um, to find mentors that can help tailor uh, advice to uh, an individual's particular situation, um, and someone that uh, you know that is is uh, in in a leadership position, and, and also. Finding multiple mentors and really just synthesizing it, you'll it, everyone, myself included, is going to give you uh, advice through the, the lens of their own experience. And so, you know, hearing from from multiple people and and uh, really synthesizing it into to a best plan for yourself um, is certainly something that 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 helped me. So I'm going to ask maybe a little less diplomatic question, but more grounded in, in kind of the, the route to procedure. Uh, so uh, I think around the time that you... <laughs> run, Michael, run. <laughs> I know. Like, uh, 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 out here. I, I'd love to chat, but... <laughs> no, it, it's, not, it's not that controversial, Michael, uh, to be honest. Uh, and, and I'm not con- controversial at all, just saying. Um, Okay, time, time but, um, out, yeah, time out. I'm calling BS <laughs> right. on that one. It, we'll deal it, with it, that it, later. It, it, it is not all about me. It's about Michael. This okay, interview is about okay, Michael. Okay. So let's, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I no, no, no. It, 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 it's, to, 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 to be honest, it, it's, it's a bit more personal, but I think it's more about kind of getting to tying up the pieces of what from the outside looks like pieces of a puzzle, right? Because did you, I know that your Stanford by design and that led to Oculive, et cetera, but looking back and hindsight is always wonderful. Looking back, does it seem to you both uh, empirically as well as how it played out uh, that Oculive was more of kind of a stepping stone to where Presidio is going to be like, for example, that the technology for blocking at the time when you started Oculi, which was probably in around 2010s, wasn't there as yet. And therefore, I think Oculi seemed like a more sensible option. And then by the time you were finished with Oculi, sold it to Allegan, it bought you enough time to go back and focus on your on your graduate love, which was nerve blocking. Is is that is is that is that a crappy way of looking at it, or is that a reasonable way of looking at it? Uh, you know, I, 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 I think I'm going to disappoint you with my answer. That's fine. Um, you can't you, you can't do it, that. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a, a maybe, maybe potentially controversial question, but not a, not a very controversial answer. I mean, it, it was it was really much more organic than that. I mean, I I um, I, I, I went to biodesign and. You know, through that that process, um, our, our team had come up with this really intriguing idea, and uh, it just it had momentum. And it seemed like a great vehicle to learn. 
um, and and took it forward when uh, so it was acquired by Allergan. I spent two years at Allergan and um, uh, you know learned a lot and had a really positive experience there. But uh, but it was very clear to me that my you know my my true love is is uh, startups and uh, yeah began thinking about uh, thinking about uh, among other things the you know, the the nerve block work that. Um, you know, I felt was was really compelling, but uh, but hadn't yet left academia, and so um, you know, I thought it was worth picking it back up and and giving a shot to see where it went. Yeah, that's fine. That that's that's perfectly okay answer. I wasn't expecting anything fireworks <laughs> worthy. So just saying. Okay, so I I, I let a rune, you know put up the ruse of having something controversial and now I'm going to sneak in with my own, which is, um, and if it's not, not something you want to comment on, that's fine. But how, how far, <laughs> how far do you think, um, Presidio is from having a, a product for the mark ready for market? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's closer. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> His next career, ladies uh, and gentlemen, is politics. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, I would say, um, you know, within some short number of years, I mean, they are, um, they've run two really successful clinical trials. They're, they're gearing up for another one now. Um, and the, you know, the, the pivotal trial is, uh, it's the protocols in draft, and they're having conversations with the FDA. So it's um, that's it's, great. And I know, I mean, external off. forces are outside of your control. So we'll we'll let you stick to that answer. It's and it's a good one. I appreciate it. Well, I do <laughs> want to uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's it's great. I'm glad we have sort of the the full arc of your career so far, at least in Cliff's Notes versions. And, and I think it's, um, it's really just a, a great opportunity to look at some of the things that are important to the field and, and will continue to have um, import and, and significant progress for not just nerve blocking, but neuromodulation in general. So we really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Pleasure speaking to you and appreciate all that you guys do for the field.